Hello and welcome to another installment of Conf Tea with URSE. A quick reminder that the thoughts and opinions expressed here are our own, and to please consult with Cisco TAC or Cisco Certified Partners before implementing any of the recommendations made on this show. I am your host, Brian Young, and today we're going to talk about Cisco email security. Joining me today is my co-host, Brian Boyd. How are you doing, Brian? Uh, doing well, Brian, as always. Glad to see you here. And also joining us today, special guest uh, for the first time on Conf Tea with URSE, Clark Caparelli. Clark, how are you? Doing well this morning, Brian. Fantastic. Clark, thank you so much for joining us today. I brought you in um, as our overlay for email security, and um, I've worked with you over the past couple of years now and know that you are definitely strong when it comes to email security and all things really Cisco security. Um, So I wanted to talk about specifically about the Cisco email security, but let's talk about the low-hanging fruit. Why do we need email security today? Well, Brian, um, to tell you the truth, email is, is the biggest threat vector out there. And and it's been that way for about 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, possibly even more. Um, I, I think the, the the very first email that was sent in the 1980s was, was probably spam advertising something that somebody didn't want in the first place. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, if you, it doesn't really matter who you go to to look at a metric, whether it's the FBI's IC3, whether it's Talos itself. Um, some people will point to like 93% of, of all of the malware intrusions are caused by email or, or email is involved in some way. Um, it doesn't matter what the exact metric is. It is just absolutely 100% clear. Your biggest threat vector in business today is email. Um, it's the weak link in the chain. Right. Um, considering that email is really a business critical asset. We, we do all run on it. It doesn't matter how many cool things that we have, whether you've got Teams or you've got Slack, um, your company runs on email. So if email's down, um, if email is a, is a problem for your organization and it's uh, where the malware is getting in, it's where people are exfiltrating your, your data through or uh, they're just straight up stealing money from your company, um, it, it's not an option just to shut it off. So we need to put some, some layers of protection in there. So let's talk a little bit about those layers. Looking at kind of, again, the, the low-hanging fruit here, what are the first things that we can do, uh, the first things our customers can do to protect themselves when it comes to the various types of email attacks that are out there? Because we're not just talking uh, Nigerian princes asking for, for money. We're talking about um, phishing attacks or even spear phishing attacks where I'm pretending to be like the CEO and going after the person that I know has the ability to wire me money. And um, you know, in this case, that requires spoofing, right? There's a lot of different attack avenues for email. And as you said, it's business critical, so we can't just shut it off. What are some of the things, the basic things that everyone should start at? That this should be, you know, this should be your, the first things that you do when you set up email for an enterprise. Well, for a second now, I'm gonna I'm gonna channel my inner CISP on this one and and talk about you know uh, the common things we we look at in the in the triad the the CIA triad or AIC um, so availability integrity and confidentiality hmm. um, one of those big ones is disaster and uh, disaster recovery and and business continuity um, let's make sure that we've got backups to our stuff let's make sure that we've got uh, an email setup or an email design that lends itself well to, um, I won't call them volumetric attacks, but email can be a very bursty thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's make sure we've got a good 
uh, foundation to build anything else on. We, we've got to be able to resist that sort of um, abuse and uh, things like that. Um, SMTP, of course, is the protocol of choice when transferring email. Um, when we talk about other things like IMAP or POP or, or uh, exchanges, uh, proprietary protocols, those are really user agent to, um, to mail store protocols, but the internet transfers itself on SMTP. So let's look at what we're doing with port 25 or it's secured ports. And I, I highly recommend moving towards uh, SSL TLS uh, over uh, port 25 or uh, SMTP secure. Um, that at least gives us a little bit of uh, a modicum of protection because we're protecting that first hop or the hop to the to the sender there. Um, doing some basic IP filtering. Uh, that's going to keep things like we shouldn't see connections from the outside world coming from our inside. So just basic hygiene steps. That's about as far as we can go from a, from a network level without any additional products. Mm -hmm. The next thing would be within your email software, you should have some basic checks in there. Things that can say, hey, listen, if, if somebody's trying to send an email to Bob Smith, but there's no Bob Smith in the directory, don't accept email from that sender. Um, sort of common sense things. But other than that, uh, email's kind of a tough nut to crack by itself unless you have an external service or something that's security focused. Because again, Email is designed for let's take in lots of volume and let's be business critical and let's do as much as we can without going down. But security is typically an afterthought in every email system out there. So this sounds great, Clark, and it definitely sounds like you know, there's some first steps. But what about, where does things like uh, sender policy framework, DKIM, where, where does that all fit in? I mean, are these necessary steps as well? or so SPF, DKIM, and DMARC are three technologies that kind of go hand in hand. And, and I, I think we're, we're getting into some more advanced topics here, but um, it, it makes sense to talk about them. Um, back in the day, we kind of realized as security practitioners that some of the attacks that were happening, some volumetric attacks, some of the things that had to do with uh, sender spoofing, so we're, we're pretending to be somebody we're not, but from a legitimate email server. Um, we were changing out bodies, intercepting messages in between the, the actual sending MTA and the receiving MTA and changing the bodies to put malicious messages or, or various things like that in there. Um, so we developed as a community, as a, you know, actually Yahoo was a big player. Cisco was the other big player in a lot of this stuff um, in creating sender policy framework and creating domain keys. So sender policy framework will turn around and say this sender, the sending MTA um, is sending a message that is signed and they look at the body of the message. Domain keys will turn around and say, hey, listen, the sender is actually who they say to be. And, and again, we're not going back to the individual, we're going back to the sending MTA. So those two things together tried to solve the problem of um, that the person sending the email is a legitimate person and it hasn't been changed in transit. Mm -hmm. It kind of left a few other things open to interpretation, though. And it was possible to insert parts of messages because an email is not one solid stream of data. 
It's a bunch of different parts, and they're specified by the MIME protocol. So people could go in and throw in another MIME section, and you could append or prepend something malicious into a legitimate email. So now we kind of go into the newer generation uh, where we talk about DMARC. Um, and DMARC now combines those two technologies, uh, DKIM and, and SPF. And when we combine that with TLS as a transport mechanism, we have a really good um, triage approach to how we're going to deal if an email is spam or not. And, and realistically, what we've done is we've now raised the bar for the attacker. The attacker now needs to spend a lot more to design infrastructure. He needs to create DNS entries. They need to have a registered domain name. They can't just stand up something on AWS or Azure or some other cloud service, um, fire out a bunch of emails, and then burn the infrastructure down later. Um, that's a technique we, we use called snowshoe spam, um, where a high-volume sender can come up and then burn the infrastructure. And one of the biggest drawbacks of uh, some of the early email systems that email security systems that used a real-time black hole list is that these guys could spin up infrastructure, fire off a campaign, and burn down the infrastructure before a real-time black hole list could be published. So it was always behind the times um, and, and not a great security uh, design. So now with DMARC, we've combined all these things where you have a reasonable assurance that the sender is who the sender is, or the sending MTA. The message hasn't been changed in transit. You've proven with TLS that the last hop, it couldn't have intercepted that message and changed it. And then it gives us a mechanism to tell the sending MTA um, that something's been received that's not legitimate. And the sending MTA can tell you what to do with it. So should I quarantine it? Should I reject it? Or, hey, our DMARC implementation still isn't up to snuff, so go ahead and let it through. Um, it's the long pole in the tent as far as stopping spam. Um, one of the other great ones we talk about is, uh, is what made Ironport great in the first place and and what's continued to make Cisco email security great, um, something we've improved on, and uh, that's our sender domain reputation. Um, so we're now also adding an additional piece to that sort of concept about how trustworthy is the email by looking at the senders and what their reputation is uh, over time. So we're looking at the reputation, and it's a more or less your guilty until proven innocent. So if your your sender has been responsible for only sending spam in the past, uh, the domain's only been active for 30 days, chances are with Cisco email security, that email is not going to come through. Um, we're going to mark that as spam, flag it, and, and drop it. But these are your basic triage techniques right up front uh, that are going to reduce spam. Now, we talk about spam, and for some companies, spam's a big deal. They just don't want to see the extra stuff. Uh, I, I really don't need to see anything from that Nigerian prince. I'm 100% sure Bill Gates is not going to give me $10 for every person that I refer to Windows XP. Those things just don't happen, let's face it. Windows ME, he'll give you $5, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, legitimately, spam is an annoyance. 
However, within spam hides mal spam. That's your, your spam is de- delivering malware. That's where your phishing emails are coming from. 100% of phishing emails are spam because they're not wanted. They're un- unsolicited emails. So by reducing spam, we've now reduced the ability for the bad guys to deliver malware. We've reduced the ability for them to deliver um, phishing emails and targeting phishing emails that are going after your your C-level level executives, um, that they're looking for privileged information, um, or they're looking for that second hook uh, into your organization. So that's where it all starts, Brian. Let's... Uh, Let's reduce spam, and we automatically reduce our risks. Sounds easy enough. Yeah, exactly. Just get rid of spam. So let's say um, that one of those emails does make it through, though. What should you focus on for that part of the process as far as securing your enterprise? Is it your end-user education to, to let them know, hey, don't click on stuff that looks like spam, and educating them on what these phishing attacks look like? Is there anything we can do if they do click on these links? Just sounds curious like a, about that. It sounds like a combination. What do you think, Clark? So from a non-technical standpoint, I got a hundred percent agree with that, Brian. Um, from a non-technical standpoint, education is still a great weapon. Um, we're really good as humans at looking at things that are supposed to be in our native languages and realizing when they're not. We can see that people that are non-native English speakers, um, and of course Germans, if they're non-native German speakers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, we can figure out when some of those sentence structures aren't correct, the misspellings aren't correct, um, people's motivations can kind of come out. We don't normally cut to the chase that quickly in our in our culture. Um, I so do. I just come to Brian every morning. I said, hey, can I, I need 20 bucks. Let's go. <laughs> So you, you do have these these things that you can readily identify that, by the way, are an almost impossible computer task to identify. Um, noting those misspelling errors or, or differences in the regional language uh, are very hard for a computer or even an AI to do. And by the way, AI is not a word uh, I throw around lightly. Um, <laughs> it's not even a word. It's just two letters, but I'll, uh, I'll let that one slide. <laughs> Um, so yes, education, showing them what phishing emails and, and frequent exercises to make sure that, um, that users can identify that sort of stuff. Um, from a technical standpoint, you can also protect the user end of it. Um, again, it's, it's not just, Hey, go ahead and click on this link and, and we're going to show you some stuff that, that maybe you can participate in and, and, and buy some products from us that may or may not be legitimate. Um, the real risk to a business is when they're coming in to uh, get that relationship with a user. And the user may have some sort of privilege in the business. Now, that may be a CFO or the CFO's secretary that has the ability to write checks. Um, it may be somebody who's a CTO that has some privileged information about projects that are going on. Um, and it, it may be that low-end sysadmin that has expanded privileges just because they perform backups. Um, those are your three main you know, targets that the bad guys are going after. Uh, being able to get somebody to click on a link um, and potentially pretend like it's a, an Office 365 document that they need to log into Office 365 to steal credentials. Uh, that was actually a recent attack um, by a, a foreign adversary 
where they were getting people to click on what looked like a, a uh, perfectly benign Office 365 document. When the victim went to go log into their Office 365 account, uh, the browser page they were redirected to looked absolutely identical to Microsoft. Really couldn't visually tell the difference um, when they put in their information. Their username and password were captured. But even better yet, they were using a two-factor authentication. I'll get into that one first in a second. They were using a two-factor authentication that involved using a timed challenge. Yep. The once the user put in that six-digit PIN into the the micro uh, the um, <clears throat> multi-factor authentication box, the bad guys were able to intercept that in real time. Yep. Replay it back into Office 365 and then perform some sort of a success message back to the user. At that point, they now had full permissions to uh, the, the the victim's Office 365 account and were able to go forward and, and move laterally from there. I'm glad you brought that up because that, that was a big thing, right? Multi-factor was supposed to be, or two-factor was supposed to be the, the end-all be-all. All you needed to do was get these time-based tokens and use Authy or Google Authenticator or whatever, pop in your six-digit code, and, and you're good. Um, and as I'm sure you're going to go to in a minute, this is where the differentiator, what we have with, with Duo, really takes that risk and, 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 and takes that off the table. Because in, in the case of what you were talking about, they were pretty much just proxying that authentication, putting in that code when the user did. The timing happened to match up. They would get in, and then they could, as you said, just move laterally. But with Duo, that's different, and I'll let you explain why. Sure. And and you're never going to hear me say that multi-factor authentication is a bad thing. Right. Um, I, I think it's an absolutely critical piece in, in protecting the user um, and protecting the data that's on applications. However, um, you know, in the in the heyday, in the beginning parts of multi-factor authentication, we kind of depended on these time-based challenges, which gave you 60 seconds to enter in a six-digit pin that was on a little piece of uh, hardware that, you know, might have had three letters on it and was linked back to some server somewhere, GPS satellites for timing. Um, If you have a 60-second to timeout to enter in a password, uh, that means your adversaries can be looking over your shoulders and have 59 seconds to beat you to, to entering that in. Mm-hmm. Um, equally as bad is SMS. Uh, so the, the strength of, you know, texting somebody a six digit code, um, is based on, Hey, nobody can actually look at SMS. Well, SMS has been well compromised by now. Um, just weaknesses in SS seven protocols and phone switches and people using IP based phone numbers. Um, that's no longer secure either. So in order for it to be, you know, much more secure, we're looking at one-time passwords. We're looking at um, challenge and authentication scenarios where we're doing a handshake rather than just sending out um, a six-digit code that's generated every 60 or 90 seconds. Um, At the risk of plugging my own product, um, Duo is absolutely fantastic at this. Um, Something like this would not have been possible. Um, or a two-factor authentication that's as strong as Duo does it, uh, wouldn't have been possible a few years ago just for the simple fact that we didn't, the internet infrastructure didn't exist. We didn't have the reliance on those sort of things to be able to pull off the, um, the challenge handshake rather than just count on it being a time thing. 
So um, it does represent uh, a better level, much higher level of assurance uh, with two-factor uh, than, than previously realized with a, with a time-based token. Right, and just to, just to play back that scenario, um, you know, if Duo was in place, the... You know, they put if if they were to see the the fake page, right? And let's say everything was in place where it was connecting to Duo to call back, right? And Duo sent that push notification to that uh, user's device. The thing that would have been blatantly obvious to them was, hey, this is coming from a completely different location than where I'm actually logging in from. And they just go ahead and hit X, and that authentication is denied. And then even from there, if, if, if they know that it's something bad, right from that, you know, that red X, they can report, hey, this is a problem. Um, and then IT gets alerted. And that's that's even assuming they would have even gotten a duo push and not just exactly. a, an, an, an outright denial right there. Because if, if the Microsoft um, Office 365 is integrated with duo to say, hey, this is my two-factor authentication, um, the adversary's ability to hook the duo portion of it um, is nil. You, you can't yep. do that just through that that web page. Yep. So um, yeah, again, we're we're saving our saving our customers, saving our our users from making silly mistakes. Protecting it all the way down to layer eight. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then again, I, I have to say that one of the other important parts back to education again um, and. Not just the education, but the constant exercising. Um, humans forget. We're we're really good at forgetting things, especially annoying things, um, and and re- having to figure out phishing emails that IT is sending over to you to figure out if you're paying attention. Uh, that's generally an annoyance for most users. Um, we do offer, as part of our Duo packages, the ability to do that sort of phishing training on a regular basis. It's included as part of the package. You can do it. 10 times a week to your customers if you want to. Um, and the best part about it is we, we go into the next level scenario, not just uh, did they get the email, uh, did, they, did they open the attachment, but did they open the attachment and attempt to enter in credentials? Right. Did the credential stealing attack actually work or did the user identify it before that point? Because let's face it, um, as bad as some of these phishing attacks are, some of them have gotten really, really good at looking at our diction, the way we say things, especially even, I'm not talking about just a language barrier, but the way we do it inside our company, using using certain phrases and acronyms that we would expect, you know, as Ciscoanians, um, you know, that they're going to harvest through other campaigns and make that phishing email look as perfect as humanly possible. It's going to look like it's coming from a person that should be sending that sort of thing. It's going to look, the text is going to match what we see in our daily conversations. Um, the link is going to look believable and the portal that they take you to or the, the, that web page is going to look believable too. Um, the ability to simulate all of that in a safe environment um, you know, we, we know humans aren't going to catch 100% of spam. They're going to really be really good at 99.9% of it, but it only takes one email message. Just takes uh, one. As, def- as defenders, we got to be good 100% of the time. Um, so we really care. Did they compromise the credentials? Not necessarily. Did they click on that completely believable link from that completely believable email? 
into a completely believable portal? Did they do the, the bad thing and put credentials in? We also want to talk about the technical controls around some of this. And one of the other kinds of attacks I want to refer to um, is, is what we call domain uh, homologs or cousin domains. So one thing that computers are really good at and humans are horrible at, actually, that's a double-edged sword. Um, when somebody handwrites the letter A, we can tell the difference between whether it's in you know Gothic script or it's it looks like something that was you know done on a computer and it looks just like Calibri or it's handwritten and it's sloppy or it's Comic in sense. calligraphy. <laughs> yeah, um, we we can see people's cursive and recognize that as the letter A, and it's the same thing as something that's written in block text. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a curse and a blessing at the same time. When we talk about emails, we're looking at things that are sent in block, you know, uh, block fonts for the most part. And there are a lot of character sets out there where an A in English does not look like or is not the same letter as an A in Cyrillic, for instance. They certainly do look alike. Computer can pick that out instantaneously. Uh, behind the scenes, that that eight bit number that represents that character it's displaying are vastly different. Right. So we get this rise for uh, IDN or, or uh, homograph attacks or homoglyph attacks where we as humans perceive it to be the same character. Computers know it is different. So one of my customers has both um, an, an I and a T in their domain name. Um, and what they, they realized is that they were getting these attacks from um, from outside sources that were using both a Cyrillic I and a Cyrillic T, which you know, to your, your average person uh, look identical, um, or at least characters. I'm not saying they're a Cyrillic I or a T, but their characters look very much like an English one. Um, it looked like an internal email. It was actually coming from externally, um, completely different domains. So it, it 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 was it couldn't be processed as though it was an internal to internal email. So what we've done is we've built some uh, additional capabilities into Cisco email security. We call it forged email detection. Um, we're not only just looking for these uh, cousin domains uh, coming from outside our email organization. We're also looking at some of the parts where you would expect the bad guys to pretend to be from. So if you want to get somebody to do something in your company. Um, you pretend to be the CIO uh, or you pretend to be the CEO uh, or the CFO. So let's build this dictionary out of all of the things that are important to our company, um, our, you know, principles in the company, people that have power to compel people to do stuff. And we build an engine into it, um, again, collectively called Fed, uh, where we're going to twist and change and do all kinds of regex stuff behind the scenes uh, to figure out every different possible combination, capitalization, uh, spaces added in front, back, in the middle, things like that. Um, One of the key differentiators to this is that we're not asking you as the customer to be an expert at writing regular expressions. I did that as a Unix systems administrator for many years. Um, It is very much an art more an art than it is a science. Um, <laughs> and uh, and it's a dying art at that. 
So we're, we're trying to make email a little bit easier and you're just going to build that text dictionary out. Um, and you're, we're going to be able to do that automatically behind the scenes to figure out if somebody's pretending to be a principal in your company or if they're using one of those cousin domains. So huge, huge uh, ability to stop those uh, targeted phishing emails right up front. This really takes, this kind of picks up um, where SPF left off, right? Where SPF will tell you, the allowed MTA servers reside at these IP addresses, everyone else deny. And this takes it a step further and say, well, if it looks like Cisco.com, let's say it's Cisco with an, with an O or an acrylic I or whatever, and it looks like Cisco.com, even though that domain, when you look at the, the binary, is a completely different entity. It's not Cisco.com the way that a computer would see it. It's still going to say, well, this looks like cisco.com this looks like something else that we know i'm looking at this this forging it's a different way of of showing it's a different way of doing the same thing that you know as, as you said before uh a computer wouldn't normally detect a computer would not normally see you know cisco with an o and cisco.com as being the same thing or trying to be the same thing but just see it as a completely different entity and if those uh, SPF records check out it. If it's coming from that server that's that's allowed, then good, no problem. I'll, I'll allow it through. But as you said, this is where the forged email detection picks up. Yeah, to some extent, I would I would agree with that. I mean, you know, we talk about SPF, DKIM, and DMARC protecting us against unknown MTAs. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, it's only an eighty percent solution with those things. Uh, we we know that we. As businesses, we don't we don't act as a little island. Um, we have, you know, partners and customers that we do business with that aren't going to be on DMARC. So we have to have those little white lists in there for hey, I know this is an authorized business partner, so I'm I'm going to let them come through without DMARC because they're not set up for it yet. Right. Um, but it also doesn't help us. I mean, they're awesome things for knocking down spam. But what happens if that authorized business partner or customer have themselves been compromised? So SPF, DKIM, DMARC, they're not going to help you because we're verifying the legitimacy of the email that was sent and the source that it was sent from was legitimate, not necessarily is the content legitimate. Right. Now, if we do have one of those situations and somebody's trying to get you to connect out to a domain that is one of these uh, cousin domains, um, or we're trying to fool an email system to make it look like it's an internal to internal message, um, that that's really where we get into that forged email detection uh, look at it. Um, and, and again, we do have some other issues, and there there's certainly issues within the way we sort of do email uh, in general, um, as as human beings, uh, not necessarily as Cisco, but we we have to take some shortcuts for some email services that don't do things a hundred percent the right way. I'm not going to call out any specific vendors here, uh, but some people when they they do forwarding through their email systems. Don't re-sign SPF. Um, and when they do that, uh, we can no longer use SPF as a valid detector of whether the body of the message has been changed or not. So now we have to integrate more uh, engines to look on top of that and, and 
dig a little bit deeper into those messages. So one of the things that we do need to deep dig sort of deep into is what's the content of the message. Now, if somebody's just spitting out text, um, not a big deal. Um, but generally, we're looking at things like, hey, um, emails are coming HTML formatted, even even more so HTML5 formatted these days, which is awesome mm-hmm. because we're back to the flash days of having blinking GIFs and, and things changing color on us. And uh, it's, a, it's a wild and woolly world. I still have PTSD from the Incredimail days. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, we're we're looking at again. I think I think the first um, email message may have been spam uh, ever sent. Um, I'm pretty sure that the second email message was the the first one that contained malware. Um, generally, um, we've gotten really good about limiting extensions that can come through, um, and and we're looking at those attachments, looking at the extensions on them um, as a as a society as a as a practitioners of security we've gotten better than just look at what's the extension on the end of it and actually digging in and finding out what kind of file it is um it it's very hard to take something that's an executable and put dot txt on the end of it and expect it to get through an email system uh these days so you're saying i don't so, want to send or receive executables through email probably not the <laughs> best idea um the chances of them getting to their destination are slim um mm. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can't send executables. And I know you can't hear air quotes on the podcast. Um, they're there. <laughs> yeah. Um, being able to send things like PowerShell scripts, um, you know, sort of archives that have executable programs in them. I remember, I think uh, back in the day, I think some of the Melissa stuff, um, you know, we're, we're sending VB script inside of, Microsoft Office documents um, doesn't need to be Microsoft Office either. Uh, a lot of people turn to stuff like Open Office or uh, uh, LibreOffice in order to avoid uh, not only just the cost concerns with Microsoft Office 365, but because their formats were "quote unquote" more secure. Right. Guess what, folks? There are now attacks out there against those formats. Um, even Hancom Office, which came pre-installed on my ancient Samsung Galaxy S7 um, has Hancom Office that has its own format mm-hmm. that can run macros. Um, now, while you, you may have some finance people that do enjoy their macros to fill their their charts and their their graphs, um, you know we we as practitioners really have very little to do with them. But people that pay our paychecks do. So it's right. not enough just to block office documents that have those sort of um, scripts and, and macros in them. We have to look at them intelligently. Um, back in the day, it was enough to have an antivirus scanner out there. Um, and an antivirus is, is simply nothing more than a hashing engine. I'm going to hash this file, figure out something that makes a unique signature for it. And now I've got a big, that database somewhere that has a copy of all of these hashes, and then usually some fancy name we gave to it, um, like win32.mydoom, because that was just a, a great one. <laughs> um, 
some fancy name some vendor gave to it and and how bad it was right problem with antivirus is in order for antivirus to be effective um the threat has to have already been known somebody that antivirus vendor has to have looked at it deemed it to be bad then created a new version of the database with that thing in there and mm-hmm. then you had to have received it and installed it yep um if the threat gets in before that happens, before that whole chain of events happens, and this is something that can, in some cases, take two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the days of uh, Melissa and My Doom and I Love You. Um, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Bringing, I'm digging up the archives of this one, Brian. <laughs> um, it could be two weeks before you saw one of those infected emails. Now, that's just not the case. Um, and chances are the payload would not have changed. Um, now we're getting, you know, per instance mutability. We're, we're getting a lot of um, polymorphism that sort of render a lot of this AV ineffective. So we've introduced, you know, AMP, um, Advanced Malware Protection, which uh, I'll always go back and say AMP, AMP's not a product. AMP for endpoints is a product. It's, a it's product. an actual yep. executable that sits on your workstation, whether that's a, a PC or a Mac or an iDevice or Android um, or Linux that does stuff that's endpointy. Yep. AMP itself is a capability. It's it's this ability for us to share threat intelligence, specifically threat intelligence and and uh, indicators of compromise information about files and and uh, and IP addresses and domains, down to anything that can look at a stream, and treat it like a file. So in this case, what we've done is we've put an AMP engine on top of email security that can mm-hmm. treat every single email conversation as though it were a file. Let's look at all the parts and pieces. Oddly enough, we can take apart all that mime um, and and look at each part individually, pull out those attachments, take something that might be hidden in a zip file, blow that zip up and send across metadata about each one of those files, um, blow up that office document and take a look at just the, the uh, macros and the VB scripts that are in there. Do they do something malicious? Um, and if it's something that the AMP cloud has seen before, and this could be something that it saw 10 seconds ago from another customer completely on the other side of the world, yep. um, you're going to get protection from that. No database needed. We don't, we don't need to wait that 12, 12 hour to four week waiting period to get a signature. So you're going to get that instant, near instant point in time. And if it's something that looks like it has a kind of a bad reputation, it's not known good, it's not known bad where we would have blocked it anyway, we're still going to send that up to ThreatGrid. And um, for those of you who don't know, ThreatGrid is um, Cisco's premier sandbox. It's the premier sandboxing technology um, in the industry. Um, And one of the reasons why it's great at what it does is all of its instrumentation sits on the outside. So there's no way for the bad guys to figure out they're running in a sandbox. And then beyond that, there's tons of secret special sauce that that make it um, extra useful in figuring out if something's doing something malicious or not. What we're we're looking at in ThreatGrid uh, is then going to go back and inform the AMP cloud. So if it's been seen before by ThreatGrid, 
um, and it's deemed malicious after detonating it inside that sandbox, then the AMP cloud's going to be informed, hey, I saw this, this particular uh, VB script or executable or other IOC. We've deemed it bad, and everybody that's now participating in one of these AMP engines know that thing is bad. Mm-hmm. So five seconds later, after it hits the AMP cloud, everybody across the world knows that's a bad file. Mm-hmm. Uh, realistically, it's about a ten-minute heart. Uh, uh, yeah, a ten-minute heartbeat between AMP, you know, engines in the cloud. So there may be a little bit of a delay there. But at the same time, sandboxing is expensive. Sandboxing takes time. Um, and I'll kind of go back to one of the, the the great wins of Threat Grid over literally every other technology out there. So there was a. Um, we had a uh, certain variant of malware that decided what it was going to do is instead of detonating on Microsoft uh, Word, it was a Word document, Word would open, macros would run, stuff like that. Um, and most sandboxes out there turned around and said, yeah, I don't see it do anything malicious. So they closed the Word document down, closed down their sandbox, and marked it as good. Um, by instrumenting on the outside, what we found out was that the malicious stuff executed on document close. Mm. So when Microsoft does close a document, there are certain routines it can run. And it was leveraging these, which because the the real-time sandboxing those other technologies used um, didn't see, ThreatGrid picked up on. Now, depending on how big a file is, how complex it is, a threat grid run can take up to 30 minutes right. um, to be able to, to fully detonate something, step time forward, backwards, interact with it, things like that. Do you really want to hold up an email for 30 minutes? Um, and I, I think that some customers would say absolutely. Um, most of those are three-letter agencies in the U.S. government. Um, but I think for most corporate uh, entities, they're going to say, uh, no, we're not going to hold up email for 30 minutes so you can figure out if that one stupid little innocuous um, uh, document file was malicious or not. Mm-hmm. So they let the email through. Now, let's say 30 minutes later, we do determine, hey, that file was bad. Whoops. What do we do about it? Yeah. Exactly. Whoops. Um, if you've done that point in time, sort of, hey, one time it's good to go, that thing's now floating around your organization with that combination of threat, grid, and AMP. We can now do what's called a retrospective analysis and a recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, which brings us up to another great feature of email security. So within the AMP ecosystem, if that reputation, if that disposition changes at any point in time, could be an hour later, three days later, three weeks later, three years later, we find out that file was bad. We can now tell you as an administrator, and we have the ability to go back out and quarantine or delete that file. Yep. Within the email ecosystem, we bring in what's called mailbox auto-remediation. So by working very, very tightly with Microsoft, um, we're using uh, some of their best internal APIs, the Microsoft Graph API, as well as now with Email Security 13, going back and using their EWS API as well. We can pinpoint where that file came in to what user's mailbox it was delivered and reach right back in automatically, yank that infected email out, and then tell you as an administrator. That's our thing. Take yeah. action, then tell you about it now. 
we're not a security monitor. We're not just going to tell you the bank is being robbed. We're actually going to take action and then let you know after the fact. And this is part of the whole Cisco security before, during, and after. And I'm glad you brought up AMP because we we did talk about AMP um, in length on Episode 9, Protecting the Endpoint, where we touched on Threat Grid and we touched upon um, all the different pieces of the AMP for Endpoint product. But as you said, AMP is not AMP itself is not a product. It's an ecosystem, and we can place AMP where it makes sense. We place it on the firewall. We place it on the endpoint. We place it on um, the web security piece with Umbrella. There's a there's a piece there. We discussed that in episode ten, protecting the edge. Um, but it makes a lot of sense to put it on the email as well. And as you said, in those two scenarios where either we get a chance to hold on to that email and this is adjustable within the within the email security software right we can adjust how long of a timeout we give if the security if, if the company is or the organization is okay with holding on to an email for 10 minutes but no longer to allow threat grid to do its stuff and it allows malicious email through we can go in and pull it back or if you give us the time to scan it we'll keep it from going um, into that mailbox in the first place and if you are also an AMP for Endpoint customer, and that user has downloaded that file, and it's on their desktop or in their downloads folder or currently running, you know, uh, <laughs> currently running on their on their computer, because AMP for Endpoints is using the same database, online lookup system, and intelligence that comes out of ThreatGrid and AMP for Email, that AMP for Endpoint with that within that 10-minute heartbeat is going to be no, going to be notified, hey, You've got a file that I just found out is malicious. You need to go ahead and quarantine or delete that or whatever the the, uh, the process is um, because that file, we thought it was okay, which is why we let it run in the first place, but now we know better. And that really kind of remediates the whole process. Correct. And um, I, I would say of any of the domains of what we need to protect um, in, in the security realm, email is by far the hardest. Yeah. Um, there are just so many ways where you can gain entry through email, so many ways that you can game the system. And it, and it's been a constant challenge staying one step ahead of the bad guys. Now, on top of that, in order for an email security system to be effective, it has to be able to integrate with anything the customer wants to bring as an email server. I, I still have customers on Lotus Domino. Um, it's not all office 365. We have, you know, across the entire spectrum, we've got all kinds of different things. What it also means is that we have to support a ton of nerd knobs for (laughs) every different possibility. Yep. So email's hard to secure and by necessity, an email security product that's flexible enough to handle every use case. Uh, is generally perceived as being something that's also very hard to use. Right. So one of the things that we're doing is we we try and make it as easy as possible. And I, at, at some point, we want to get into some of the, the things coming up in email security 13. But as an administrator, we're making it easier by giving you walkthroughs on common things that you would want to do. Um, we, we can bundle in services to help you go from zero to 100 in, in two weeks. Um, we can get things like DMARC 
DMARC is not, again, it's not a product. It's not a capability. DMARC's a journey. Hmm. Um, I had to do this by hand uh, back in my, my former government days. Um, it is a 12 to 14 month effort that's going to require at least one full-time equivalent. And then after you're at DMARC reject, you're still going to dedicate at least one day every two weeks to one month to maintain what you need to do with DMARC. We've turned around with CDP and we've now made that a cloud-based service that you bolt on to your existing email that does all the heavy lifting for you. And it can be a DMARC reject instead of 12 to 14 months. Most of my customers are there at 90 days or wow. less. Wow. I mean, we're trying to make it easy. Security is by necessity a hard thing. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It just simply is. Yeah. Um, it requires a special level of understanding. Um, and, and predictably, everything we try and do as security practitioners is met with some level of resistance. Yep. So we try and make this as easy as possible. When we talk about things like AMP, um, AMP on email and firewall, and we talk about it on uh, web security and what it does for endpoints, um, this great capability of tying everything into Cisco threat response or cyber threat response and giving um, a, a SOAR platform, security operations, analytics, and response, giving that platform to our customers for free, that really speaks to let's do things simpler. Let's make it simpler for the administrators, the security people, the SOC, um, and let's be able to get them to get their tasks done faster. So if you're hunting a threat and you're using Cisco CTR, um, again, free, we give it away. It's yep. really just tying together the capabilities we already have built into our products. If you're using CTR and you see that, hey, AMP for endpoints is picked up on a malicious file, let's, let's figure out the lifespan of that file and we can trace it back all the way into email. And maybe in, in email, somebody sent a link. Yep. Somebody sent a link and, and that link wasn't weaponized up front, but at some point in the future, that link was weaponized to draw down malware. Yeah. Now, we do offer a great facility within email security to make point-in-time tracking, but let's say your, your administrators didn't want to turn that on. So that link makes it through, it's looked at the one time, um, and it said, hey, it's, it's, it's benign, but it's weaponized. They, link, they hit it, they, they see the link, um, they download the email, or they download the file from, from a you know, Dropbox or something like that. It detonates, becomes bad. Now we have this complete picture of exactly how that thing got on the user's desktop. Right. We can trace it back to email and realize it came from a certain sender. And now we can take action against the sender, against the email, possibly any undetonated ones, because now we can find all of the emails that were sent to any other inboxes mm -hmm. and yank those out at the same time. And um, it's something that we believe very heavily in, um, and we, we've built all these capabilities into our security architecture. Um, we do think it does take an architecture, and uh, you know, for the last couple of years, we've, we've gotten some chuckles from our competitors in the industry uh, that want to throw everything into one box that does it all. Right. Um, and now all of our competitors are starting to realize as um, we did many years ago that 
they need to do the same thing. And they're really validating what we've been doing for the last three years. And they're they're partnering with with third party companies. They're they're realizing that, hey, we might have something that's viewed as a best in breed email, but our ability to detect malware, figure out where it's coming from, or provide any sort of tracking beyond the instant it came through our email appliance, um, they're realizing they need to partner with two or three other, you know, uh, leaders in the space to get the same sort of information and capabilities that we get just in the base products. Right. Um, and that's powerful. I mean, that's powerful when you can walk into a customer environment. Um, I can set up a, a proof of value and within a day I'm catching zero day vulnerabilities coming through email that six or seven competitors products that were installed at that um, at that uh, business didn't see at all. Yep. Now that's that's definitely a powerful story, Clark, and it's it's one that I repeat just about every day. You know, there is a better together story when it comes to Cisco security versus the competition, right? And it's it's not a ploy to sell more SKUs. It's not a ploy to bundle them together or to get an enterprise agreement, although. Those things are good, and especially things like bundles and EAs, they they help our customers save money on these bundles. But the idea here is, again, there is no silver bullet. There is not one box that's going to protect against everything. We've just been talking about how complicated email is and how difficult of, a, of an attack vector it is to protect against because of the fact that you can email. I mean, I can put uh, an executable inside of a password-protected zip, and unless you have a policy that says, if I can't scan it, uh, don't allow it, that's going to get through. I put the password in the email body, someone opens it, and poof, it's on the it's, it's on the endpoint. And, you know, my email security does not have an endpoint piece. S- Cisco does. And, you know, you mentioned CTR. Using CTR to ingest all that data, um, you know, and, and search through those dashboards, email, AMP for endpoints, umbrella, uh, coming soon, firewall. To be able to take those IOCs and SHA-256 hashes and domains and just hit search and have it scan all of those products, your environment, and show you exactly where those whatever showed up, right? right. What, what endpoint they showed up, what mailbox they showed in, how you know what saw it, why it got through, whatever. That's huge. And that is a competitive differentiator between... Cisco and everyone else, and as you said, you know they've been they've been laughing at us, and I've I've seen a lot of uh, documentation about you know where our competition comes in. And it's like yeah, they're just trying to get you to buy more. It's really not. We have to take a multi-factored, multi-multifaceted approach. But the idea here too is that ah, uh, dare dare I dare I use defense in depth. I oh. mean, I've only been using it for twenty some odd years. I mean, it's still as a valid long as you don't term, use right? single pane of glass, that's 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 all. I'll get <laughs> I'll get reamed by the Talos guys next week if I uh, if I use uh, single pane of glass in any serious conversation. <laughs> and, I'm even and, afraid know, Brian, to say zero day in front of them. <laughs> I I want to um, you know reflect on one other part of that, and and I think that a lot of our uh, our customers are so concerned with the concept of you know, phishing emails and spam and, and what's coming in, they kind of neglect the other part, which is what's going yep. out. Yep. So I, I worry about two things. I, I, I have a couple of customers that are that are ultimately worried about data loss prevention. Mm-hmm. And um, 
understand that if, if you're in something that it's a pure cloud environment, um, we, we as security practitioners need to do a better job at understanding what customers say when they mean data loss prevention. If you're looking at a pure cloud environment, you're looking at things transferring across Office 365 and like from, for instance, uh, or things going from box to, uh, to SharePoint or somebody emailing something out of SharePoint. Um, we're really talking about something that's, that's CASB, that's cloud access security broker. Right. When I refer to DLP, I'm looking at, hey, somebody is moving around a Word document or a text file that has social security numbers in it. Um, it's got, you know, 50 people's names, homes of record, um, and, and their cell phone numbers. Um, it could be intellectual property. Hey, we, we've got the new Cisco widget coming out in 2027. Um, here's here's going to define the network for everybody. Um, that's that's the stuff we look at with DLP. Um, I do have customers that are ultimately concerned with traditional DLP. Um, the other part that I look at that I don't think a lot of our customers are thinking about is what happens if that endpoint has now gone out to a uh, a TLS secured website. Um, they're they're you know their edge firewalls are are not doing TLS decryption, so they're they're saying, hey, we have a legitimate business need to to have Box or Dropbox. We have no control over because we're not decrypting. Right. This person pulls in a piece of malware that now harvests information about email and is now using you as that platform to launch attacks from. Coming from a uh, non-secured environment where somebody's not looking at both parts of the traffic, um, you've now just become the bad guy on the web. You're the one that's spitting out. Your company's reputation is now taking a dive because you're the one spitting out the mouse spam. Um, so I think it's also important to, to recognize that we're not just looking at what's coming into your organization. We're looking at what's going out. We're scanning that for malware. We're scanning that for your IOCs. We're blocking that email. And oh, by the way, we can identify that, and then you can hunt down patient zero and whack them on the head with a tack hammer. On this podcast, that patient zero is usually Karen in marketing. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Karen. Poor Karen. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we talked about differentiators. That is, that is definitely one of them, um, and the ability of building that into it. So we've, we do have... Um, some other things that we can talk about too, but I, I think it's important to bring up. We talk about Cisco's email security being a def- differentiator. We've we set the email security world on fire in 2006, 2007 as Ironport, and and I've you know I've been a customer since roughly uh, 2007. That's that's when I was a customer. I bought into. Uh, a product that still said iron port on the front plate, even though it was sell t- sold to me by Cisco sellers. Um, we've continued to add incrementally, sometimes revolutionary things to it, sometimes evolutionary. Um, and it's always shown. Uh, so after Gartner stopped doing secure mail gateways back in like 2015, uh, that's been picked up uh, by Radicati. Uh, and and the Radicati group has has really taken over both the, uh, the Gartner perception aspects of rating secure email products as well as the technical ones too. Um, so when you look at an Opus One is another technical one. 
Uh, it doesn't matter what year you've looked at. Um, we are the leader. And I, I don't mean we're in the leader's quadrant somewhere. It is Cisco email security is the very top right, the the standard by which all other email security products are measured. So we talk about being an architecture, and then we talk about people that are that are sort of like, hey, let's let's throw our eggs in one basket with a single vendor versus the ones that say, hey, we want to do best in breed for everything and we'll figure out how to tie it together on the back end, whether it's human right. or it doesn't matter which kind of customer you are, all the way in the top right, best in yep. breed and have the best architecture. And that has not wavered um, ever, literally yeah. ever. Um, no one has been able to take the top spot from this. And I, I, am, I really am very, very thankful that within Cisco, we have, um, we have a development team. We've got uh, fellows like uh, Usman Din, who is uh, absolutely a thought leader in the in, entire um, in industry, um, and they're they're elevating email security to a a new place. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, everybody's playing catch up. Yep, they might try and introduce one little niche feature, and then talk about how that's got to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. Like uh, we can do email archiving directly on our product and. Our response to that is so. You still can't block spam. You you can't block malware. Um, and so you want to archive it, that spam and malware that you got. Awesome. Exactly. Cool. Exactly. Yeah. So so what's the point? Why why introduce niche features except to distract the customer from the real conversation? And the real conversation is what provides maximum efficacy and what cuts down your spam and what protects you after the fact. Yep. Um, and that's that's pretty much where we stand on email security. Is um. You know, I, it has always been the best product in the industry and will continue to do so for some time. Um, and now we've got some some great new things coming up, too. Well, let's let's not keep our audience waiting, Clark. What new features do we have in the latest release of 13? And without giving away too many state secrets here, without uh, getting in trouble, what can we tell our customers about what's coming down the pipeline? So uh, with email security 13, one of the, the things that we had a little bit of a, a split brain on is if a customer were in Office 365 with email security 12, um, they could get mailbox auto remediation. But if, if you were running you know, Exchange 2016, 2019 on-prem, um, you were kind of out of luck. So with 13, we, we've now integrated in addition to the Graph API, the EWS API, so now you can get mailbox auto remediation. And in addition to that, it's not just can you get this or that, it's this and that. So when you have hybrid deployments, we can automatically determine where the mailbox is and what method needs to be used. And we can go after that, that mal spam or whatever it is. That's huge. And, and the auto remediation is the piece where we can go in and grab an email that we've determined to be malicious in some way shape or form because of either the attachment or the link or whatever um and pull it out of that user's mailbox uh after the fact after it's already been delivered yep nice. um i think one of the great ones and, and this one has been uh i've been watching this one for quite some time um we now have uh what we're calling safe print it's content disarm and reconstruction 
So now we're able to take all of those different file formats, uh, common the common stuff we would use in an office environment. So whether it's Word, PowerPoint, Excel, uh, PDF documents, we're now able to completely tear those apart and re-render them as a PDF and then deliver the PDF to the customer um, in a format that has no additional streams or need to, to have executables in it. So in this case, you can accept some of these somewhat riskier documents um, with actual zero risk to yourself. Um, I think it's huge. That's impressive. We do have one other thing I will mention uh, coming on, again, a follow-on release. And for one of my customers, this is huge. So when we talk about emails that may not be malicious, they are malicious. We find them out after the fact. Hey, uh, mailbox auto remediation takes care of takes care of that. But what if it's something that's not malicious, just annoying? Like somebody has this chain email going on, and you've got this massive email storm, and you need the ability to pull stuff out. Within CTR, you'll now have the ability to do remediation at will. Be able to find any email message, right click, and remove that email from everyone's inbox. And the best part about it is it doesn't, because it's integrated with CTR, we don't need to have somebody who is an email administrator with God permissions in email security to do it. If you have access to CTR, you'll be able to take care of that remediation. I find this to be extraordinarily useful. Uh, One of my customers where you have a, a, you know, the email security team who's responsible for blinky lights, keeping them on. Making sure that, you know, stuff that ends up in a spam box belongs there and and stuff that doesn't doesn't end up in spam. It's a thankless job. Um, The last thing they want to get, you know, brought into is the the SOC team needing more information and and more of their time doing stuff. Now, it makes the SOC team, they have greater capability to do stuff without potentially um, affecting the production email flow. I think it's, it's awesome and it's uh, again a differentiator out there that no one else has. This is awesome stuff, Clark. I know that we've been uh, talking for a while here, and there's a lot of uh, information to digest. We'll be sure to include some links in the in the show notes for any of the pieces we talked about, including maybe some uh, um, just some quick starts and guides here. But as I always say, if this is something that you want to look into, definitely reach out to your Cisco account team. Get a POV. Talk to them about um, ways that you can protect your environment. And if you haven't had that Cisco security conversation with your account team, I strongly encourage you to do it. You know, it's not us just trying to push more products on you. There's a reason that we have these products bundled together. There's a reason why these are all ingested with CTR now, where we can go in and search those particular products, email being one of them. Emails, we've said, um, and I think we've driven home with this podcast, email is still the number one attack vector out there. And there's really no signs that it's going to slow down. In fact, we constantly have to keep up with the ever-changing um, methods of attack that the the malicious players out there uh, are, are throwing at us. Uh, and the nice part is that when you have the resources and the, uh, uh, the knowledge that you have with Cisco, it allows you to try to stay on top of that as best as we can. So um, Clark, I think we're going to wrap this one up. Any final thoughts, any things you'd um, like to add? Uh, 
Absolutely. Um, anybody that's out there, if you want to try out Cisco email security, um, please go to the Cisco homepage, talk to your partner, talk to your Cisco seller. Um, we will be more than happy to come in, give you a POV. If you're a current Cisco email security customer and you don't think it's living up to the marketing hype, please give one of us TSAs a call. We'll be more than happy to get out there, do a health check and make sure that you've got a lot of uh, all of our best business practices running um, because there is nothing out there that can beat it, honestly. Clark, I'm glad you brought that up because that that's a big point that I don't think I, I really mentioned ever. Um, if you are a current customer of any of the products that we've talked about or any Cisco products and it's not working up to the hype, reach out to your account team, talk to a TSA, um, and, and let's let's do a sanity check. Let's do a health check. We want to make sure our customers are utilizing the products that are best suited for them and they're utilizing them in the right way. So, Clark, I appreciate you bringing that up. And thank you for coming on the podcast as well. And thank you for listening to ConfT with your SE. If you have a question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like to suggest, please send us an email at hello at conft.show. And if you like the show, please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues, giving us a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you're not already subscribed, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so that you can get notified when we publish an episode every two weeks. Show notes for this episode can be found on our website at conft.show. That's C-O-N-F-T dot S-H-O-W. As always, stay safe out there and don't forget to save that config.